Welcome back to another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation. We're your hosts, Melanie Sona and Erin Leadka. And today we are joined by the one and only Majora Carter. Indeed. Um, we are so excited to have her on the podcast today. She is a real estate developer, but that highly undersells um, all of the all of the um, accomplishments and things that she works on. Uh, Majora is also an urban revitalization strategy consultant, a MacArthur Fellow and Peabody Award-winning broadcaster. She's responsible for the creation of numerous economic development, technolo- uh, technology inclusion, and green infrastructure projects, policies, and job training and placement systems. She's also a lecturer at Princeton University's Keller Center, Um, Majora applies corporate talent retention consulting practice to reduce brain drain in American low-status communities. She has firsthand experience pioneering sustainable economic development uh, in one of America's most storied low-status communities, the South Bronx, as well as cities across North America and abroad. Majora's work produces long-term fiscal benefits for governments, residents, and private real estate developments throughout America. Thank you so much for joining us today, Majora. We're excited to learn from you, learn from your insights and experience. Aw, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, Ms. Carter, um, j- just for the people listening out here, what they might be wondering, um, you know, why do we have a real estate developer on our podcast? But <laughs> you're not just any real estate developer, Ms. Carter. You are specifically going into these um, as you would call them, low-status um, neighborhoods. Um, and in, in your book, um, uh, you specifically talk about going into your um, neighborhood that you grew up in and just identifying the assets in these communities and building them up because there are assets to be identified in these places. People don't have to leave their communities for a better standard of living. And our podcast is all about um, neighborhoods and health and how where you are affects your health outcomes in particular, but not just that um, trajectory and economic standing and so forth. Um, so we have Ms. Carter on today to discuss exactly how she's been going about um, building up these communities that have a lot of potential and have a lot of value and how to um, identify the value in um, these typically um under under um, invested in communities. So um, would you just start by letting our listeners know, you know, what do you do as a real estate developer, specifically why you're unique, as I mentioned, and um, what led you to this uh, career as an urban, t- urban development? So first of all, I, I wrote this book, Reclaiming Your Community, You Don't Have to Move Out of Your Neighborhood to Live in a Better One, because it really is about our talent retention approach to community development. And, you know, because we take that the, the same kind of approach that businesses take when they're trying to hire up a firm, you know, they look for the best talent, you know, they'll invest in the talent once they come on board. And they do that, you know, in the hopes that people will, you know, that they hire will give their best efforts in support of the the vision of the, of the, the company. And, but we, we don't do we don't do that in American low status communities. And, um, and so in my book, right. I actually put the glossary up front. It is literally before anything else, uh, because I want people to understand what yep. certain terms that I use mean. And so low status specifically, you know, would, so they're the kind of neighborhoods that most people would refer to as poor, under resourced or underprivileged, but yada yada and all that stuff. And not to say that they're not poor or under resourced in, in many ways, but 
it also really refers to the, the places where um, the air quality is poor, where the where you find more environmental burdens, where you'll do see worse health outcomes, you know, lower educational attainment, you know, where opportunities for for job creation or even um, or job career opportunities rather um, are less than in other parts of the same town or city or wherever. And so in those areas there, we've noticed that even though there's an enormous amount of funds that are often funneled into them philanthropically or um, through government or um, other private uh, ways as well, but the conditions in those areas don't get any better. Like we've seen billions of dollars pumped right. into those areas, but educational attainment, you know, definitely in, in your line of work, health as- health outcomes are not getting any better. And so we kind of had to look at that and go, hmm, if that's the case, and it's been happening as far as I could tell, certainly all during my, like at this point, almost 30 year career. And even before that, what, how is, are we looking at the, those people in the community in those areas as assets and how are we looking at them as assets? Are we literally saying that the people that, you know, were born, they're identified early with, you know, educationally or, um, excuse me, with academic, um, or, or artistic or even athletic gifts. Like we identify them as the ones who actually need to measure success by how far they get away from those neighborhoods. We don't expect for them to Mm. um, invest themselves, their time or their talents into their own community, but we'll seriously look at, we can figure out ways to make sure that they leave those neighborhoods. And it's an assumption. That's what we believe. And I was one of those kids who was a really bright kid. And it was just like, it never occurred to me, never occurred to me. And no one ever said like, you're going to, you're going to grow up and be somebody and you're going to do so here. You're going to grow up and be somebody and you're going to leave. And that's what we do. Right. And there is right. this, this, you know, well played out script that the talented ones are meant to go away. But what does that mean for the community itself? And we continuously see, again, lots of money put into those neighborhoods, but the outcomes don't get any different. And so what we decided to look at was like, well, one, one, why are people leaving? And not investing, you know, not just their money, but their emotional and their mental and their just sort of like even psychological love in, back into their communities. And how, if we, if we actually made a targeted approach to do a talent retention approach to community development so that people would feel as though they had something to look forward to as they invested themselves yes. into their community, what would, what would happen? And we knew it would happen. <laughs> we realized that if we create help to create spaces that made people feel like their communities were worth being in, that it would have a ripple effect and it would make other folks feel like this is the same way. And that's why we took a very project-based approach to community development, which was building the, what we call lifestyle infrastructure, which are the kind of things that we knew people in our neighborhood leave the neighborhood to experience things like cafes, parks, you know, right. um, bars, uh, bookstores, just the kind of things that make people feel like their neighborhoods are worth living in so that they, and spending time and money and their talents in so they can see them each other as well. And so that's what we focus our developments on. It seems so, so basic, but, or like fundamental, but no one 
else is doing it. And they're definitely not doing it at the, you know, the, the problem solving level that you're kind of operating at. And I think um, that that was some, I mean, even the title of your book, Reclaiming Your Community, really resonated with me. And I'm sure it resonates with other readers too, of this idea that our Neighborhoods are not like just because, and I also like, you know, you mentioned the glossary in your book. I like that you use the term low status because for me, that implies that yeah. this something is assigned, right? So there's other factors and that because something yes. is assigned, 100%. it can change. It's not uh, 100%. Um, it is. It can change. But in, but in the way that it's used here, status implies that inequality is assumed. But again, can it change? Right. Absolutely. And that's the piece that folks are just like, well, you know, you can't will say that because it means that you're saying that that um that status is this is um like almost immutable. And I'm like, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it the way that there is an assumption and we see it the way that communities are, in particular low status communities, are developed, that you plan for poverty. You plan for poverty and yeah. you see it in all the developments that are there, you know, from, you know, a concentration of low income housing to the prevalence of many, you know, health clinics and pharmacies. You know, you also see it in terms of the economic developments that are there. You'll see a lot more liquor stores and smoke shops. You know, you won't see great opportunities for different yeah. diverse opportunities for um, for food. You know, so you'll see often, um, you know, sort of like greasy spoons or fast food places, but it's hard for you to find farmers markets or like, you know, a diverse array of different types of, of supermarkets or even, you know, different, different types of them or even, and forget about like dining options. You that that's not going to happen. Um, it's really, it's, but again, does it have to be that way or is it designed to be that way? And I say that it errs on the side of design and especially in low status communities where there's like a very well oiled machine, you know, that, that's part of the the nonprofit industrial complex that looks yeah. at those communities as like, okay, poverty yeah. is what we're planning for. It's part of the culture and our job is to help manage it. And they get plenty of, of support and love, you know, from our, from both local and state and city governments that help support that kind of work, but also the developers who know exactly how to take full advantage, you know, in particular of the continuation of the concentration of very low income subsidized, um, of quote unquote, affordable housing but only for the lowest income bands. And so even, I mean, think for your work, you know, since we know statistically that the concentration of poverty actually reduces, um, you know, poor health outcomes. I mean, no, it doesn't reduce it. It, it, it exacerbates, um, you know, poor health outcomes, um, you know, for a number of reasons, because of the way that the community is developed, because of the type of infrastructure that's there, you know, does it have an impact, you know, on the quality of life, you know, the air that people breathe, all of that, all of it. But again, if the, this is the way that we've been doing this work for or doing community development for all this time, then that's the way people are going to do it. And so, yeah. And so I'm not so I'm so Aaron, there are and many folks that have been doing amazing work. And I am actually still finding out about some folks. Literally, I just had a phone call today with an amazing woman from from, from Tulsa. Um uh, Oklahoma and, and is oh. trying to work and has already done some really amazing, you know, mixed income projects, but, you know, is now really pushing the city awesome. to ensure that, that the project that they're doing, which is all about mixed income, uh, 
uh, mixed income and mixed economic development, you know, in the historic Greenwood district, you know, which is the Black Wall Street, which was destroyed, you know, over a hundred years ago at this point. Right. And, you know, whose history was just buried. And it's just like, no, she, this, this black woman, um, you know, has, has built, you know, a mostly black That's team awesome. of, of development professionals to redevelop an enormous part awesome. of that area. And, you know, and it's get, it's, she's getting pushback, you know, and it, it will be a national story pretty soon. But, um, and I really hope it is because it's just, it would be obscene, you know, if that thing becomes what I think certain, uh, the economic development, um, uh, uh, center of the city. They want to build a parking garage on it. And it's just like, no. Yeah, no. Yeah. Not at all. Uh, not at all. Uh, yeah. And it, it surprises me. I mean, you mentioned like this pushback that she'll likely face. And I know that it's something you talk about extensively in your book. That's just infuriating because clearly what you're doing uh, my opinion, which I believe to be true, um, is the key to really seeing an amelioration, well, in our case, health disparities, just seeing like overall community um, revitalization and health, um, because we're not now just yes. like covering up a problem by making a place better and um, displacing those who, you know, are in these places. But now we're able to see, like, we can generate more of an uh, income. You know, it's good yeah. for the whole economic system in getting these pl- these these communities mm-hmm. to be running up to speed and caught up. Um, and I really do love this approach that you take with, um, you know, keeping the talent in a community and, and using that talent to build up the community. And uh, this ties back to a concept you discuss in your book, the brain drain, which I found to be really interesting. Um, uh, and uh, actually, interestingly enough, my, my parents are from uh, a country in mm. West Africa called Cameroon, and they came to this country for to seek opportunity um, that they couldn't there. And actually, intention, initially, their goal was to, to come here, study, and then go back home and then get a job. But between the time they came here and finished schooling, yeah. uh, leadership had changed and um, there was no longer job wow. promise of job opportunity there. So they ended up staying in this country. And I, I kind of found that to, to somewhat parallel with what you discussed um, in, with brain drain in um, our communities here in the U.S. I would, could you maybe just yeah. discuss well, what brain drain is and what are the, the, the contributing social political factors that are, uh, uh, you know, perpetuating it? Yeah. I mean, brain drain, usually with the way that, frankly, most Americans think about brain drain, it's, it's people, you know, from other countries, usually in the developing world, where they come to America looking for more opportunities because there aren't any, you know, where they are. And that's the way we think about it. And, and or we've been taught to think about it because America is the land of opportunity. Um, however, but Americans leave low status communities on the on a daily basis, whether they're Native American reservations or inner city communities, or even poor white communities that once had lots of um, uh, uh, industry, you know, where there were real workforce development jobs that people could actually get and build a raise a family on, but that's long gone. I mean, the Rust Belt is filled with towns like that all across the, you know, all over the the Rust Belt and in other, um, you know, manufacturing centers around the country. So, and so where they leave, they go, then when they leave those towns, they will go, you know, not necessarily to another country, but they'll go to another part of the state. Like, for example, in, um, in Minnesota, in Minnesota, um, probably the last time I checked about 60% 
of the people that were born on Native American reservations in in Minnesota, which is an enormous part of that country, 60% of them live in the Twin Cities, you know, because there was no opportunity up on, on the res. So, and that's very common. It's very common. You know, it's like, I can't, you can, you can just see all sorts of, um, uh, you know, every time you go to, you were in, in one of those a low status community, like, yeah, you'll hear about somebody who went off to, to make their, 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 just to get a better job. You know, here it's like, I think of my own neighborhood and the kids that, you know, now we're all the same age, obviously, you know, the ones that I went to school with, you know, not all of us, you know, did badly at all. You know, right. there's because there's this perception that, of course, you're from the South Bronx. Everybody's a, a pimp or pusher or a prostitute. Not at all. Um, you know, some folks actually did have trouble with the law, but most people, they just moved out of the neighborhood and went on with their lives. Sure. You know, and, and because to them, most of, you know, and actually many of them would come back to visit family and many of them would have stayed if there was opportunities for them to build their lives here, whether on, whether it was a business development opportunity, job, job, career opportunities, or even being able to find housing that matched their income. And usually no one's building housing or workforce development housing or, or middle income housing, the way that a lot of the folks, you know, from communities like ours are prepared and they're in, in those kind of fields um, and in those careers where they actually can afford to actually pay a decent amount of money for, for housing. But again, if nobody's paying, if no one's building that housing, then you can't see it in neighborhoods like ours. And so that's why we're really focusing on mixed income housing and mixed use uh, commercial development, because we believe that economic diversity is the key to communities being stable and whole. It really does give people an opportunity to see the, what, that there are options, you know, in their lives and available for them because they get a chance to see it because there really is something about if you don't see it, you won't believe it, you know? And it's why, you know, like one of the, I I think it's one of the saddest parts of of my book. When I, when I say, you know, I was like walking back, it was like, we started our cafe, which is like the lifestyle, you know, um, uh, project. Thank you. That um, we did. My husband just delivered me a coffee from, from my cafe. (laughs) Perfect timing. (laughs) And so we've had it for, um, you know, since 2016 and we just had, you know, regular customer, you know, we saw them all the time. And at one point, like within the first, um, not even first full year, we were open. We went, um, (laughs) we went back. And so I was downtown, you know, at a meeting and then I was coming uptown and ran into one of our customers on the subway. And so we walked out of the train and, and he's like, so what are you doing here? And it was because it was nighttime. And he's right. like, what are you doing here? And I was like, uh, I'm going home. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's like, so wait, you live here? Oh, wow. And he was astonished mm-hmm. because to him, I was successful. And to him, success, success, successful people don't live in our in neighborhoods like ours. And that really struck me. And I get that a lot. I get that a lot, but this was just a really funny one because like he literally saw me every day and was just like, just assumed, oh, wow, she can't, you know, she has a cafe. She's done this. That can't be, there's no way she lives here. But what does that say about the way people feel about exactly? That's what was so painful. Um, yeah. 
Not that, not honestly, Melody, it, Aaron, it wasn't, it's not the, the pushback. It's more that, that really bothers me. It's more of sort of like this, this falling, you know, and believing in the low expectations of our own community that's been placed on us. Cause that's what's, that's harder for us to deal with than anything else. If you ask me. And that's what I really like about your book. You do a great job of breaking down how, you know, low status communities have been conditioned to think yes. that this is what is expected. Oh. And you also mentioned, which I thought was, um, you know, prove this point even further that when your, your first project hunts um, point uh, park, they, Oh, hunts that point people, Riverside park, Riverside mm-hmm. park. Okay. I was like, I, that people were shocked that it was, they didn't know why it was there. They didn't know they were like, is this even for me? And I think that not only <laughs> are you doing the policies that actively, you know, are you're implementing policies and um, investing in the community that are making daily lifestyle changes, but ultimately having residents believe that their community can thrive. They can reclaim their community yeah. um, is so impactful and something I was I was curious about, you talk um, a lot about mixed income um, mm-hmm. housing and development. And I think that in uh, my research and when I've encountered some um, limited, limited understanding of re- real estate development, um, but there's a lot of issues around displacing current residents. And I think right. in your book, especially, it was very this this idea of concentrating poverty and also almost confining poverty. Um seems to be a really major contributor to a lot of this, like how we were talking about the non-profit industrial complex and kind of perpetuating these um, health disparities in our context, but also other issues that we see in these communities. But how are you implementing, um, how do you implement mixed income development without displacing current residents? Yeah, it's mostly, and um, hold on a sec. So we just got a, a new barista at the cafe and James, this is delicious. It, it's really, she's really good. In New York. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's fantastic. So I'm so delighted. I'm so delighted. Mm. <laughs> so a little distracted because that is my first cup of coffee today. Um, <laughs> glad it's a good one. So, but anyway, um, I, you know, when, so when we talk about, so it's, it's, See, now this is the thing that I feel like is, is part of a very false narrative. It's just like, you know, oh my goodness, you know, the second you build, you, you know, any, anytime you like start building anything, it's like you're displacing people. It's, yeah. there's, is a bunch of research around that, that where it's, it's a lot more nuanced than, than just, oh, you know, they come and then they go. It's like, it, there's so much more to it. And, but I think ultimately, you know, what we also, the, I think we're sometimes asking the wrong questions you know, if we also need to be, why are we not asking the questions like, how come we're not building more supply, period, you know, and those that asking just that question would get us to the point where it's like, you know, we've, we've set up so many, you know, not us on this phone call, but whether it's the financing industry, whether it's, it's like, you know, government laws, you know, that around zoning and all sorts of those things literally make it prohibitive in every single way to actually build more. The cost of money is really ridiculous. You know, some of the, the 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 way the subsidies are applied are really really hard to get around, and it means that only a small group of folks will be able to do at least like that um, particular types of housing. Um, you know, or even just get the capacity to even build. Period. And so, again, 
if we like really wanted to take a more thoughtful approach in how do we, you know, actually prevent displacement, part much a good piece of that would be like we need to add more supply to meet the demand, period. And we don't it's just it's it's chronically um just not asked as a, a question. It's like what do we need to do? And I'm just like, you know, we in, here in New York, it was like our last administration was like, we're going to build 300,000 new units of affordable housing. I think we're we're nowhere near that in part because they no one's really been thinking about like the fact, like, how do we build, you know, increased density and do it in a way that's thoughtful and useful and really does meet people and all of their needs, not just around the housing needs, because, you know, in order to build a decent community, it's not just the housing. Like what else is in those communities that are either adding value to the quality of people's lives or reducing the quality of people's lives as they go through that community? And again, that's those are not real questions that anybody's even considering asking. And I find that super um, disingenuous. But again, so for us, what we're really trying to work on is how do we increase more opportunities to for for the supply? Because if we're if and even within and again, so we talked earlier about like some of the folks that are working on really incredible mixed income and uh, and mixed use properties because I think and they're doing it on land where nothing is being built on, and there's a lot of that a lot of that happening, and I don't think it gets the kind of um of of interest that it should because it's much more I think I don't know why but I think it it seems much more um interesting for people to be talking about like you know they're building like you know 100% affordable housing and it's these these little bits of units and that's what's that because that's meeting a real critical need and it's just like and I'm not saying it's not a critical need but but the totality of the needs actually goes beyond just you know creating only very highly subsidized affordable housing for the lowest income band. I mean, it's why, you know, like there was a pretty damning study um, that came out, like even New York City is losing people. You know, like we haven't, you know, since pandemic, you know, has, um, you know, I guess technically, well, I don't know if it's technically over or not, but, you know, since all of the, the restrictions, people aren't moving back, you know, to the city. And we've actually lost population, which I think is like, this is New York City. Wait, right. what? <laughs> There's <laughs> one place that shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it's happening in a bunch of larger cities. And I think that's saying something, you know, to folks. And it's like, and if we're not actually heeding that, like, well, why are people leaving in other places where it's actually easier to live? And, and if we don't, like, take that seriously, then it's going to be a much more difficult place, I think, to to, to be. Yeah, Ms. Carter, I think you bring up a lot of very interesting points and in the way that you're approaching this idea of um, building and developing. It's just very like uh, innovative to me because I think traditionally when I hear about real estate developers, right, it's typically, you know, bringing in like a, a Whole Foods or uh, one of these um, higher class, um, you know, in, uh, enterprises into an area that's maybe not um, quote unquote, uh, better off. Um, and, and then somehow in some way that will attract, um, you know, communities that can help increase the value. That's, that's I guess, what the uh, layperson's common first perception right. of um, development might be. So, I mean, it's very refreshing to hear your ideas that are very carefully crafted in considering communities who are there and making sure that you can preserve those communities because um, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. uh, something else we've learned in the course of this podcast actually is um 
you know, part of what contributes to health of, of individuals in a community is having that camaraderie amongst the people who live yes. there. Um, mm-hmm. So in, in coming in and forcing people out, it's causing that dispersion. And even, um, even in the, you know, people who are fleeing, fleeing to better off areas, right? Maybe um, to these more white, wealthy neighborhoods. Um, the impact can still be felt there, most definitely, when there's not that camaraderie with you right. know, your neighbors. Um, so I, I, I think that all around, your approach is like the key um, yeah. on so many fronts. Well, you know that, um, oh gosh, is it, I'm totally going to mess up his last name, but it was Eric Kleinerman, he wrote the book about the Chicago heat wave in the early nineties. Do you remember? And he did that amazing um, uh, comparison of two neighborhoods that were demographically exactly the same. You know, they were both poor, um, you know, of color. Um, yeah. Really poor and of color. That was like the thing that was, that was, um, you know, the, the, the baseline, but the one thing that was different is that one of the neighborhoods actually had like these, these community uh, spaces so that, that pe- you, people would see each other. Like there, I think there was a farmer's market or some kind of community market, something like that. And so when Mrs. Diaz, you know, didn't show up like in this heat wave, people knew to check on her. Right. Yeah. And that's why there were hardly any, you know, uh, fatalities in that area, but in the area where there weren't those kind of community um, connecting third spaces, where people could see each other. It was, you know, the, the, you know, people died like there was no tomorrow and the death rate was huge. And so I, you know, so when, but in all it was, and again, or neighborhood, but allowed, but those places, those third spaces, that's neither work nor home, you know, that urban planning parlance is really cute, which I, I love that phrase actually, you know, but what it does, it gives people a chance to build community because community is not just a place. It is an activity, but you need those type of places in order to build community. And they have to be the places that people want and seek out and not the places that make them feel like, I'm so mired in my poverty and everybody knows that, you know, I'm poor and I don't have any real value. And after a while, that kind of stuff sinks into people. Um, so you want to really find other ways for them to, to, to be connected. And so, yeah, so your, your commute, that's a, it's a, it's a beautiful way of, I think that is, that is sort of like un, is the, 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 the foundation, you know, on which all of our work sets. It does. It is. Definitely. It's critical. Um, and, and that's why, you know, I was just highlighting how, you know, what you do is definitely set apart from what we may traditionally think of when it comes to development of an area. And yeah. um, with that, I'm just curious if you would be able to, uh, you know, define for us what gentrification is in particular, because I know a lot of the lashback you experienced that you discuss in your book, um, even from some community members, um, may be um, provoked by this misunderstanding of, you know, what gentrification is. And um, I know it's, yeah. it's hard. It's yeah. such a triggering word. And it really makes me, it really does make me sad. Um, like the word itself, because it, it literally stops people in their tracks. And they once, like, I've, I've never heard a word that, that literally disorganizes people's brains more. And I can think of some really bad words that I personally never even say, like, but it's just like, but the, the G word, like I, you know, and I said, I even, I don't even really 
I try not to even use it because it's just like, it hurts people. It doesn't bother me at all, but, <laughs> but apparently, but it's just like people like get all organized. So I'm like, no, nope, that's just too much. It stops conversations. So, um, but gentrification, really, it is like, as a function. I mean, it's what we're seeing. It is, is reurbanization, which means that, you know, you have these, these, cores, you know, that were often, you know, uh, people moved out of them, which often made it easier for people, you know, excuse me, white folks moved out of them. And then, you know, poor people and black, not necessarily even poor, but black folks were able to, to, to buy in those places. And, and they're usually closer, you know, to public transit, you know, the, the, the closer to the city. Um, and now we've got people who are just like, you know, whether they're baby boomers or, you know, uh, what do you call them? Uh, millennials is the first time in, in American history where those those two diff- very different age groups want the exact same thing. They want to be closer to transit. They want to be able to to walk to wherever they want to be. And, you know, that's and guess where? Oh, my goodness. Guess where that is? Those are like the former neighborhoods that were undesirable and don't need a whole lot to make them something else. Um and so that is what we're seeing. And since, again, since we're not actually working to build that much more uh, supply to meet demand, guess who's going to win, especially, especially. And, you know, since, you know, I often will say that I people will say it's like, oh, you, gentrification is happening when you see a doggy daycare or, you know, a cute cafe in a neighborhood. And I'm like, mm child, please. No, it, what, (laughs) like, if that's when you think it happened, no, it started to happen when people in low status communities did not see the value in our own community. Yes. So when somebody who, and like, you know, in, in, in my book, I literally give examples of the type of, um, of, uh, the solicitations, you know, people leaving, you know, notes under my doors or letters, you know, saying, Oh, I like, I'll buy your house for cash. You know, now they've evolved into like, finding my, my cell phone number. And I get these calls at least a few times a week. And they just assume that I don't know the value of my home. And, and they always under, under, undersell. It's like, I know what these places are worth. It's like, are you joking? But if people just don't know, you know, they'll be like, you want to buy what, where, why, but I'll take it if they don't know. And, you know, this has been happening so long, like so much so that between other private holding companies, you know, predatory speculators that do this, but then there's also the, the, the private equity real estate market. They own 20% of American homes right now. And I, that wasn't in the book because I didn't even know it at the time. Wow. But it's 20% of all American homes. They're not in high status communities. They're making renters out of people that might've been able to afford those homes. It's terrible. Yeah, but this is America. And so there's like has been no support, you know, like after the 2008 crisis, I think prior to that, like here in the South Bronx, I believe our um, home ownership rate was something like t- over 20%. Now it's less than seven. Oh my, my goodness. goodness. So and when we, when my husband and I bought our house, I think it was 2010, 2010 or 2011, I don't remember. But our, our lawyer who managed it was like, wow. You're the first like non all cash deal that that in, in the Bronx. Really, I was like, how is that possible? It's like, yeah, you got a mortgage. I was like, well, who doesn't need a mortgage? Yeah, like, right. like, like 
And then we realized like, oh, these are the predatory speculators. And it was, and has that stopped? No, it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse over those past 13 years. And, and then we're, then suddenly, you know, 2020 happened and folks are like, oh my goodness, you know, black people are really upset and they're starting to feel it. <laughs> and part of it is because of generational wealth or they, they realize that they don't have it. And it's like, oh, wow, we've been as a country creating all sorts of systems to make sure that they don't get it and keep it. And then I just used the time to write a little book about it. <laughs> I think that's pretty productive. <laughs> a little, very impactful book. <laughs> we would definitely recommend that you all read. I think um, you did a great job of breaking this stuff down too. Like Melanie and I have no background in real estate development, um, any of like that kind of urban planning kind of stuff. We have no background in any of that. And I know that we found your book really engaging and took away Thank a lot you. from it. Oh, so I'm so I think, glad. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, I think that for anyone, especially people who you know are trying to look at, um, yeah. Well, it's their- it's meant. I think honestly, I really think that the industry wants you to feel stupid, so that you don't ask too many questions, and that you also that you don't get into it to really be and like, they can wait, take can- advantage. Yeah, and because. If you know that things can change, right? Like to your point, Aaron, it's just like no, it doesn't mean that it's static. Folks want you to believe it's static. They want that. Like the ones who aren't like actively working for things to be better, it's just sort of like no, nah, like this, this is good. It's all no, and I'm like no, like I'm not sure what you're looking at. Actually, I see what you're looking at, and I what I see. And like what, how people are responding to it and what it actually means for the quality of their own life. It's not good. And yeah, I think I can do better. And I didn't know what I was doing either. And sometimes I still don't think I know what I'm doing, (laughs) but um, (laughs) I'm getting better at, um, you know, finding folks who are, you know, who see the vision and who actually can have the capacity to like help make it even bigger. And, and what's been so beautiful for me, honestly, just as, just as a, a human I, after writing this book, because I didn't realize what the the impact was going to be at all. But I get calls and and, um, and notes from folks who were just like, "I was about to sell my family's house." Wow! And then I realized, why am I doing that? And I was like, "Oh no 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 no!" And it just literally like you want to see me like bawling and just be like, "Oh my god!" Like that kind of stuff is just um, you know, I'm just. And so the book and that's is, how you reach those yeah. people wouldn't have been reached if you, you know, hadn't um, made an effort to reach out to them. Yeah. You know, and, and I wasn't sure if, if the, you know, even writing it, I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm like, it was the middle of the pandemic. And I like, I don't, I literally, like we had no work, not everything dried up. And, um, you know, I'm just so grateful to God for my uh, publisher who literally like hounded me for, for seven years just like, I know you've got several books in you. <laughs> Let's turn them out. And we'll, we'll wait. We'll wait. <laughs> and, um, and then I was like, yeah, I think I'm ready. And I, and I don't have anything else to do. He's, they were like, bet. We're, we're on. And it was a, it was a beautiful, beautiful process. Beautiful process. Yeah. We just have a couple more questions sure. for you, if that's okay. So I think, yeah. you know, you, you're what I really admire about 
because clearly these like, you know, as you mentioned, these um, private equity owners and other like corporate people or I guess governments as well have ideas for how the space can change. They're not investing in these properties because they don't think the space can change, but their ideas about how the space can change may not benefit the community the best and the people in the community. And I think what you um, describe in your book, you have a really, um, you, you really advocate for this like inclusive and participatory planning and also um, making sure that community members have a stake and kind of benefit in the, uh, you know, revitalization of this community. Yes. How can you ensure that, and I guess this is more for, you know, communities that you maybe work with in the future or other people who are looking to revitalize their community. Um, how did you ensure that local community members have a voice in the decision-making process and um, how can you, how can people, I guess, whether that's the government, I, again, Melanie and I are not super familiar with this area. So that's maybe right. it's the government, um, maybe it's, you know, whoever is kind of working on revitalizing this community. How can you ensure that community members are a part of this process and really engaged in making the community their own? Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is just recognizing, listening to them. I mean, we, like none of my projects, you know, happened like in a vacuum and they honestly, none of them started up in, up in here. There was, it was us listening to our neighbors for years when I first started this work back in the late nineties and hearing people, beautiful people, my neighbors just be, you know, wanting, loving their neighbors and loving their neighborhood, despite the fact that they felt like there was nothing there for that loved them back. And so much of that had to do with the way that the neighborhood was was planned and the things that they would literally leave the neighborhood in order to experience with the people that they love. Again, whether it was parks or um, jobs or just places to hang out for the day, cafes, et cetera. And, and so it, so we really did follow up on that. And then when we made ourselves, when we decided that we were going to go into private practice as developers, we went back to our neighbors and like the sort of like the, um, sort of like the unofficial mayors of a block, you know, and everybody has them and you know, because they have their own networks and you don't know how they do it, but they get the word out to folks. And so we went to them, we actually started an, an advisory board and just would literally bring people in, you know, and offer like a meal and wine and be like, look, these are the kind of things that we're thinking about based on all of our, um, you know, history here. And the things that y'all have told us that they, that you were missing or wanted in the neighborhood. Um, so this is what we think. What do you think? And literally, I felt like our projects all got better with that level of very intentional input. And then we we just start, you know. And then, but I think the other really cool thing is that the you know thanks to the uh, um, and I do keep going back to like I just love what what you said, um, Aaron, about like you know like there's it's you things can change. So, you know, um, back, you know, after the 19, uh, I think it was after the, the, the first law, well, I don't know if it was the first one, but the great depression of 1929, um, the, the SEC or the government, I don't know if it was called the, the security exchange commission at the time, you know, put into play that you, that unaccredited investors couldn't make, you know, couldn't invest in, in real estate. Oh. Because so many people lost their shirts. I mean, that's why we had the Great uh -huh. Depression. Everybody lost everything. And they were like, well, we're going to make sure that, 
you know, regular people can't do that. Like you have, so you have to have over, I think a million. Now you have to have more than a million dollars in assets. Oh my and, gosh. Um, yeah. And um, more than like a quarter of a million of, of, of income, which honestly is not a lot of people. And I mean, it's a lot of people in the country, but it's not a lot of people who would actually like to make an investment um, or just to own a little piece of something or at least understand the process. But now there's um, th- thanks to changes in those rules that just happened over the past several years, small investors can participate in real estate development projects. And sometimes for as low, depending on, on what platform you use, um, uh, $100 for the same rate of return as a much larger investor. I mean, obviously, you're not going to get as much back as if you put if you if you're putting a million bucks in as a person who's putting in a million. But you still get to see what the process is, which I think is incredibly valuable for people to feel like, wait, I just did that. I'm actually now I got you know there won't be much, but I think that's really helpful for people to feel like they are participants, you know, in an economy that usually excludes them. And so we're definitely as part of our both of of, of our projects, um, you know, we're making sure that there actually is an opportunity for communities to invest, you know, in into projects that will directly benefit them. I hope they see the benefit, you know, of of of, of investing in some of their work, um, and uh, yeah, and just being a part of that. And I think that's you know the kind of things that we've traditionally been you know, denied access and participation. And we want to make sure that we're giving people opportunities to see that and be a part of it as well. Yes, I think that's incredibly profound. And like you said, I mean, I think it's a major contributing factor in, you know, reversing a lot of the damage that has been done in these communities and not being able to see the value. I mean, it's going to take generations just as like as it's been generations to do all of yep. this damage but um we're really glad to to see that your group is taking a initiative and leadership in pioneering this and that other other people are actually working on these sort of projects as well so thank you so much miss uh, carter for coming and talking to us um, but before we let you go, we just have one last question for you. Um, as this is a podcast that is really focused on understanding the impact of neighborhoods on not just our health, but you know our, tra- our life trajectories generally, um, we ask all our guests who come on if they could um, describe what their neighborhood environment was like growing up and how that might have influenced um, them today. And we've read your book, so we know that it's definitely had an impact on you. But some of our listeners who have not read your book but should read your book um, – which we will put in our podcast description and you can find it at the library, but you should buy it because you should support uh, Black authors. And this is a great book to just have in your library. But um, please go ahead and give us a little snippet of, um, of what you described in your book. Right. So I wrote my book about our talent retention approach to community development in part because the community that I was born and raised in, which is the South Bronx in the, in the early 70s and 80s, I would say it had a talent repulsion strategy associated with it. It was um, a really hard time during our uh, community's history. It was during the era of what is called the burning Bronx, where there was an enormous amount of arson, um, you know, we the Bronx itself lost about sixty percent of its population, um, and it was a really difficult time. Financial disinvestment literally helped create 
that foundation for my youth, but it also gave me an opportunity to see the difference between, um, you know, how you can create a space that didn't expect people to leave. Like it was, you know, it repelled talent, it it um, extracted talent, and that it really served, you know, as a real indication for me now, for the work that I do now, to to make communities that don't fall that way. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Ms. Carter. Um, again, we're so appreciative of your time and your insights, and I'm certain that our listeners have definitely been um, enlightened to, um, you know, more strategies that are really um, beneficial and contributive to revitalizing communities and therefore improving health outcomes and so many other things. Um, so with that, uh, yeah, we, we thank all of you for listening and joining us for another he- episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could give our podcast a five-star review and go follow us on Instagram at HNHN underscore podcast. And you can also check out our YouTube channel for the video recording of our conversations. So please join us next time to explore how healthy neighborhoods are the foundation to a healthy nation. And oh, before we end, we must put a plug in for Miss Carter's coffee shop in the South Bronx called the Boogie Down Grind. Please, there's a new barista. If you want the to coffee have is great. good coffee, you want <laughs> really a reaction if to you're in New York, you, you heard it here live. You gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all. All right, thank you so much. <laughs>